Lord, we thank you that uh, you're a God that uh, was willing to send your Son so that we could have uh, the Son, the Word, communicate to us who you are and what you're like and be able to visibly display that in actions and in words. And so we're thankful for that as we look at uh, some of the words that he declared and shared. Uh, May we be better uh, individuals understanding uh, his life, his mission, and who he was. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13. We'll spend uh, some time there and then we'll have you going some other places here this evening. I don't know what to do because this is kind of odd for me to be able to go twice and one day on the same thing. Uh, Steve came in and he said, well, you know what, you're going to be polished. I said, yeah, I'll be able to get done in 10 minutes and be done. You know, I've got it down to science. I know what I did wrong previous time, whatever. I think the closest time I've ever been to this is where I was in the first five years of teaching. I taught Bible class, and I taught the same Bible class to three different grade levels. So I had 7th and 8th grade, ninth and 10th grade, 11th and 12th grade. I had the same material for all of them, but I had to teach it in a way that was a little bit easier for 7th graders, whereas, you know, 11th and 12th graders, they know everything already, so, um, and that. But, uh, so I had to do that daily for Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, but um, did not. <clears throat> we all like stories. I read one today that I had forgotten about. It happened during my lifetime because it happened on December the 15th of 1985. You say, when was that? It was when the Bears were actually playing decently uh, and headed to the Super Bowl. So you go, ooh, wow, okay. But on December 15th of 1985, there were a number of individuals that showed up at the Washington Convention Center, and they were really excited because they had gotten notices in the mail that a new TV station was starting. And as part of the promotion, they were giving away tickets to the Redskins game, and that these individuals had been chosen for this, and they also had an opportunity to possibly uh, be in a drawing that would then allow them, uh, because the Redskins were good that year too, that uh, there were 10 tickets for the Super Bowl in New Orleans, Super Bowl 20. And so they were all excited. People came there, and they got there, and there were uh, individuals dressed up as uh, Indians, and they had a big yellow chicken, and they had uh, people dressed up in all sorts of suits, and people were coming here thinking this is fantastic, and they, they would go and uh, be here. Well, as people came through the line, they would uh, say, are you so-and-so? Yes, okay. They signed a document that was there. They say, can we just verify this by looking at your driver's license? And uh, they would look at the driver's license, and they said, okay, well, you know what? You can go to the next room. And when they got to the next room, they'd get in there thinking that they were, uh, you know, a grand prize winner of some kind, that they'd gotten these two tickets. And when they got in there, they were arrested. It was a large sting operation by the U.S. Marshals in order to get people that they couldn't find. And what they did is that they sent uh, these uh, ticket, you know, prizes uh, to the last known addresses of individuals that they were looking for. And uh, they were looking for people who were murderers, bank robbers, violent offenders. I mean, these are the type of individuals they're looking for. And these people responded. And so they said that the whole operation cost cost something like $220,000, but they made over 100 arrests. So they didn't have to chase all these people down. All it cost them was about $200 for each arrest of these individuals that they caught. I'd forgotten about that story. Of course, I was in 
seventh grade that year. Uh, so I was, you know, just aware of my own self was a, a good thing other than, you know, what was going on. But I do remember that story. Uh, and uh, you say, what's the moral of that story? Well, you know, if Publisher Clearinghouse sends you anything, don't, you know, don't accept it. Uh, I don't know what the, 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 the moral of that story is. But we like stories. And when it comes to the Bible and uh, the things that we remember, we remember stories out of the Bible. And I know as a pastor that when you tell stories, people remember the stories far longer than what you ever said in a sermon. I, I recognize that. I don't tell too many stories, but I know that people will go, oh, that's a sermon you told such and such a story. And you're like, okay, yeah, yeah that is. Uh, and we do that. But that's just human nature. And when it comes to Jesus and his ministry, he realized he was dealing with people, and he spent... Uh, a good portion, we'll talk about how much, but a good portion of his ministry telling stories. And it wasn't just generic stories for entertainment like I just gave you, but they were stories that had a purpose and a direction. In fact, if we were to say the word parables, and I don't have this on the screen, so I'm, I'm going to you know, say the answers here. I know this is going to be a little more difficult uh, here, but if we were to define what a parable is, you got in your notes there, what is a parable? If you've been in church for any length of time or around a church, you've probably heard this definition. It is a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Okay, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And uh, you go, well, what does that mean? Well, it's a story that's familiar to life. None of the stories that Jesus tells are outlandish, weird stories. People would have been like, oh, yeah, I, I know what he's talking about there with this story. I, you know, I do that type of thing, or I've been there, or I've seen this type of event take place. Uh, they would have recognized that, but it was a story that was told for a purpose. Literally, what parable means, if you were to look at it in the Greek language, it just seems, it simply means this to cast beside, para meaning uh, beside or alongside, uh, balo meaning cast, uh, parable means to cast alongside. And what Jesus was doing is that he was teaching truth, and what he would do is he would have this story that he would cast along next to truth. And what you would do is begin to understand truth by this story that was told. You see there underneath it literally is this, is what you have uh, there is this statement that using what a parable is, it's using a known, a known reality to illustrate an unknown or unseen reality. Okay, it's, it's hard to, I will tell you this, there, there are concepts that are hard to define. You know, courage, faith, hope. I mean, if I was to give you a definition, you just kind of go, but you tell a story of courage, you know, and so you would go and find something from a battlefield or something like that of a man rushing into a, a building to save individuals, um, <clears throat> this type of thing. You have a known reality explaining something that is a little bit harder to define. In this case, unseen things, unseen realities, not un or unseen truths, the Lord was trying to explain Ultimately, these are, as one has described them, stories with intent. Stories with intent. Okay? He wasn't just telling stories because he was just filling time. 
These are stories of the purpose. They're very pointed, and sometimes in the situation it was in, it was to answer questions or situations uh, a little bit more easily than just coming out and stating a fact. He told a story, but it answered whatever was the situation at hand. Your notes there tell you this, that it's not the first time, parables were not the first time, uh, or excuse me, were not new with Jesus. Okay, they were used in the Old Testament, okay? You have parables. The one that you have there is 2 Samuel, the example of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. The story is this. There was a rich man who had flocks, uh, great flocks, and he had a guest that came to his house, and what he did is that he decided not to use anything from his flock, but went over the fence to where there was a poor man who had one sheep, and he took that sheep away from that poor man to feed his guest. You know, what, what's the situation being addressed there? David had been adulterous and a murderer. He tells the story, but he's telling the story. David gets mad, which you would expect to in hearing a story like that. That's injustice. It's not right. But the whole purpose of telling that is given in the end as Nathan then says, thou art the man. You're the man. You are that individual who just did this. And it was very much what broke David. As soon as he heard this and heard that story, it broke him. Uh, so it's not, it's not the first time in our Bibles. Jesus isn't the first person to come up with parables. We do have parables in the Old Testament, uh, stories uh, designed to have a purpose. Now, if you have a red-letter edition of your Bible, what you would possibly be able to do if you just would go through and highlight, which, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend just doing this uh, this way, but if you were to go through and highlight all the parables in the uh, sayings of Christ and the, the Gospels, and understand this, they're only in three Gospels. Okay? The fourth Gospel doesn't have parables. He has statements, I am the door, I am the, the shepherd of the sheep, I am, you know, these statements, and they're just statements, they're not stories, Okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke are the ones that have all the parables in them. You go, why did John not have parables? I, I don't know. You know I, I think at that point, the stuff that Jesus was teaching that was new, that had been a mystery, it had been 30 years beyond those Gospels, and they already knew these things, so he's not telling the parables because everybody had heard these uh, already, uh, and he was giving new material, which John gives a lot of new material. But if you were to go and look at the, the Gospels that uh, you would find out in that blank that's there, one-third of Jesus' teaching was in parables. So one out of every three times Jesus would speak, you're about to get a parable. So for us, if we really want to understand Jesus' teaching, we're going to have to understand what parables are and how they were used and, and how to interpret them. Uh, you go, what do you mean in interpreting them? Um, there are only two of the parables that are actually interpreted. There's some 20-odd different parables that we have in our Scripture. Only two of them, the Lord goes, here's what I mean. This means this, and this represents this, and this is what the whole thing means. Only twice. Parable of the soils, and then the parable of the, wheats, the wheat and the tares. Those are the only two that Jesus explained. You have no other explanations for them, so you go, well, how do we know what they mean? 
We'll get to that as we get to the end, perhaps as uh, we go through and you start reading. I just read some as I went through Mark uh, today in my reading of the Scripture. I hit some parables as I was reading through this. And so as you're reading through the Bible, you're going to hit parables and you're going, well, what does it mean? Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, a third of Jesus' teaching are parables. Now the question comes up, why did Jesus use parables? I mean, the scripture tells us why he uses parables. We're not sitting here wondering. It actually uh, has reasoning in here. And I want us to look at Matthew chapter 13 and starting in verse number 10. Uh, Jesus has just told the parable of the soils. He had a big crowd. He tells the parable of the soils uh, and goes through all of this. And he comes into the house so that they're in. They get away from the crowd. And his disciples in verse number 10 say this. Why speakest thou unto them in parables? You're, you're just starting to you know, teach a whole bunch of parables to people. What's going on here is what they're asking. Why are you all of a sudden telling all these parables? Well, verse number 11, he answered and said unto them, because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him that shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables. Because they seeing see not, hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, or Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not see, or shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed. Lest at any time they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, that I should heal them. He quotes a passage of Isaiah. Anybody know what passage he quotes? It's a, the, one of the most famous passages in Isaiah outside of Isaiah 53. Anybody got a center column reference telling you where it's from? Isaiah Six nine, yeah. You go. What's that? Uh, well, Isaiah sees the the Lord high and lifted up, and he hears the statement, "Holy, holy, holy," and he falls as a man. He says, "I'm a man of unclean lips," but he's being sent out, and the Lord says, "Don't worry. I'm sending you a bunch of people that have eyes and will not see, have ears and will not hear, and I'm just telling you up front, they're not going to respond." You're kind of going, "Well, that's great. Hey, be my messenger," but you know what? You're going to be a failure. But what the Lord is talking about is that the nation of Israel has a hardness of heart, and that's what the Lord is saying here, is that the first reason that Jesus has miracles is this, to hide the truth. Okay? Not to reveal truth, to hide the truth. And you go, well, what happened that all of a sudden, when you're reading through Matthew, you have one or two uh, parables, and then all of a sudden, Matthew 13, you got seven, right in a row. Going, what, what's going on here? Well, I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 12 because it gives you what happens. Matthew 8, 9, 10, 11, you've got Jesus doing all sorts of miracles. I mean, he's declared, I'm, you know, I'm the son of God, uh, I'm here, and uh, he's doing miracles proving the point. And what you have in Matthew chapter 12 is that the Jews want a sign. Okay? They want Jesus to do something that will make it obvious that he's the Messiah. And you're going, chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, he's doing stuff that no person can do. But that's not enough for them. 
And when Jesus gets to, in Matthew chapter 12, in verse number 22, uh, there was brought unto him one possessed of the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, is this not the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. You have the leadership of the nation of Israel, the religious leaders who are going, oh, you know what? We've, and they've had front row seats for all these miracles. I mean, the one I think of most is when they have the front row seats, is when these men come to hear Jesus, they have a man that they're carrying, four of them are carrying a man who's paralyzed, they get there, they can't get into the building where Jesus is at, so they go up on the roof, and remember it's a flat, flat roof in Israel, and they lift up part of the roof and drop this man through, well, lower him through, uh, lower him through the roof, and the front row people sitting there are the Pharisees, and Jesus says, thy sins are forgiven thee. And they get all upset. Oh, no one can forgive sins. Only God can do that. And they're all mad. And the Lord knows what their thoughts are. And he goes, well, why are you saying I can't forgive sins? He goes, so, so you can believe that I can forgive sins. He says to the man, rise, take up your bed and walk. The man takes his bed and goes and walks out. He says, the son of man has the right or the ability to forgive sins. Well, they had been front row to all of this. And they had been upset by this. And what the Lord then goes through this teaching, because they're arguing for this, you know, he's not, he's not the Messiah, he's not the Son of God, he does this by the power of the devil. The Lord then says in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 12, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. I mean, he goes on, verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? I mean, he goes after the religious leaders. And then all of a sudden, you get to the end of chapter 12, and he starts speaking in parables. You go, what happens here? What is the, the, the sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this, is because you know, people go, have I committed the unpardonable sin? The answer is, if you're asking me that question, no. But what the Lord is saying here is that the Lord has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's work is to do what? It's to convince men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's his work. He is doing that everywhere in this world with unsaved individuals. He's doing this. But when you have people that consistently reject what the Holy Spirit's trying to convince them of with the obvious evidence, it gets to a point where God says, okay, enough. I'm not going to try and convince you anymore. I'm going to let you go your own way. You, you, you keep going your own way, I'm now going to go, okay, I'm done trying to convince you. No more convincing for you. And what happens is here all of a sudden you have the Lord. He switches from obvious to hidden meaning with the parables. And the Pharisees are sitting there going, what's he talking about? In fact, you get to certain situations that they go, mm, I think he's talking about us, but we're not sure what he's talking about. And they get mad because they, A, don't know what's going on, but they think that the Lord has talked about them, because he has, um, and this, and they get upset. But this is why the Lord started talking in parables because he's got a group of people that are saying, we don't believe a single thing. In fact, you're just the devil. 
That's what you are. And so the Lord started speaking in parables because of that. But even in his explanation to his disciples, we have not only did he give parables to hide truth, but he also gave parables to reveal truth. Okay, for these disciples, he said there in Matthew chapter 13, to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. There were certain things about God's working in this world that he had not told people in the Old Testament, and he's saying, okay, I'm going to give you how I'm going to do my work, how I'm going to uh, set up my kingdom and bring my kingdom in. How is this going to work? I'm going to tell you exactly how I'm going to do that through parables. And you get uh, some of the greatest explanations of the the workings of the kingdom of God, uh, especially in Matthew chapter 13, but you go through and find this statement often, the kingdom of heaven is like, or if you're in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of God is like, and we'll get to that explanation difference later. So it was to reveal truth. And there's a lot of things that we understand because we have them in parables and you're like, okay, this makes sense to me now. I mean, the parable of soils to me is, is key. Why do certain people not continue in the gospel? It gives explanations of the things that choke out the gospel and why they don't stay following Christ. It's because they weren't really saved. Real people or people who have a real um, conversion are ones who will bring forth fruit. And it'll be abundant fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. They'll, they'll do that, uh, and that's the, the story. But there are things there in that story that just dis- explain. Why do people not hear the good news? Why don't they accept it, or why doesn't it stay with them? It's because of certain things that go on. So there are things explained. The third thing that you have is that the Scripture tells us this in Matthew chapter 13, that Jesus used parables to fulfill prophecy. Okay. You're in the midst of this story in Matthew chapter 13 where he's telling all these different parables and you get to verse 34. It tells a really short parable. I mean, this parable's, I mean, this one will be one we come to and we go, eh, you know, there's not much information here. What's this story about? Verse 33, another parable spake unto them. The kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. That's the whole parable. But then it says this, verse 34, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now you say, who's the prophet there? It's David. Uh, you have listed there in your notes, it's Psalm 78, verse 2. Now, reading that context, you wouldn't go, oh, this is a prophecy about Jesus, but you have Matthew under inspiration of the Holy Spirit going, this is a reference to what Jesus is going to do. He's going to speak in parables and explain mysteries that had been hidden from the foundation of the world, and he's going to reveal these things during his ministry. Uh, so Jesus, by telling parables, fulfilling prophecy. So those are the three reasons, the main reasons that we have the scripture explained to us why Jesus spoke in parables. So we're going to get, uh, and this week we're not going to actually look at a parable, we will next time as we get together, but I want you to have some tools for interpreting parables on your own. 
Okay, um, things to, to just remember when you're trying to figure out why is this story here? Because as we said, there's only two parables that have explanations, so all the other ones you're sitting there going, I've got to figure this out. And so I gave you seven things here to try and help you out. One of them is the very first thing is, and this one's a little bit, um, yeah, it'll, it'll take you back to school days. Do not treat parables like an allegory. Okay? What's an allegory? An allegory is a story where everything in the story, the different parts of it, the different characters, all of them have hidden meanings. They mean something else. I'll give you two examples in modern culture, well, somewhat modern culture, uh, of allegories. One is Pilgrim's Progress. As you read through Pilgrim's Progress, every character, every story is picturing something from the Scripture, some story from Scripture. It's not that individual that's important. It's the story, you know, the thing behind it for Bunyan. Uh, And so pretty much everything's symbolic of something else. Um, The other one that's more modern is, uh, you've perhaps read his uh, stuff, uh, but uh, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Okay, the characters there are symbolic of different things. That's not, you know, the character itself has a hidden meaning, symbolism behind it. You get into the story of uh, Chronicles of Narnia, you've got Aslan, who's this lion, but it's not, you know, it's not the lion that's important, it's that he symbolizes Christ, um, who dies and then rises from the dead. And so it's, it's a symbol. What you have to do when you go to a parable is that there are a few times where it says this symbolizes this, but for the most part, when you're going through, it's not that you have a bunch of hidden meanings and symbols behind it. This is, this is the danger of looking at parables is that uh, people throughout the years have been trying to, you know, looking at it that way and they're like, okay, so what does the vineyard, you know, the, the, the fruit and the vineyard represent? The prodigal son, what are the corn husks that he's not eating? What does that represent? You're kind of like, it's, it, you just read the story. You don't eat that kind of stuff, and he's willing to eat it. I mean, that, you know, you just take the story at it, just kind of plain value. Because what you're trying to do is, is the next point that we have here. Um, well, it's not the next point. It's the third point. But the second point you have is this, is that you need to check out the surrounding context to figure out what the parables are talking about. You say, not the parable itself, but the things outside of it. And I want you to turn to, uh, we're going to look at two, and I'm going to tell you uh, what is the meaning of the parable just by looking at the context. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Okay? We'll, We'll start easy here. Luke chapter 10, and verse number 25. Okay? Here's the story, Luke 10, 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. I mean, he's got it right. I mean, when the Lord was asked this, what are the greatest commandments? This is what he says, exactly. The Lord says, 
So this guy's got right, and the Lord says, okay, you need to do these things, and you will live. You'll have eternal life. Love God and love your fellow man. But then you see this, verse 29. But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, how does Jesus respond? Let me give you a technical definition of this. Okay, your neighbor is, no, he goes into this story and he says this, and Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed and leaving him half dead. You go, oh, oh, I know this story. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. You're like, okay. So is the Good Samaritan story got all sorts of hidden meanings behind it and whatever else? No. What what is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan about? Who is your neighbor? And I would say this, your neighbor is your, your neighbor is anyone that crosses your path, even your enemy. Kind of going, oh, well that, you know, I could understand my friend, you know, my next door neighbor, the one I wave across the fence and you hope, you know, you know, you, you, you mow each other's grass every once in a while, you know, you're, you're a good neighbor. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. Anybody that crosses my path, including my enemy, is my neighbor. I mean, that, that's the truth that Jesus is teaching. You go, where do you get it from? It's the context. Jesus is answering the question, who's my neighbor? Um, let me give you another one. We'll turn over to Luke chapter 15. Okay, Luke 15. Here's the context. Verse 1. Then drew near him to Jesus all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. So he's got all the bad guys coming to hear him. Disreputable people. And verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Can't believe he's around these people. So what's Jesus' response? You know, condemning them? No, he tells a story. Uh, He spake this parable unto them, saying, what man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go and find that which is lost? And he find it until he find it. And he doesn't stop there. He goes to another parable. Or a woman who has, in verse 8, uh, 10 pieces of silver, which would have been like her wedding dowry. You know, this is very important. And she loses one of the coins. And what does she do? She goes to the whole house finding it. And then we have, so you're going, okay, the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the story of the lost son. Okay, we call him the prodigal son, but he's the lost son. And you go, oh, okay, uh, what's the story about? Well, how does all the stories end? Okay, the first one, the the shepherd gathers everyone around and he rejoices and throws a big feast because he's found the one that was lost. And then it says, there's great rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repenteth. And then you have the woman who finds the coin. When she finally finds it, she calls everybody together and goes, I found it. And then it tells us there's great rejoicing in the presence of the angel or one sinner that repenteth. And then you go, we got the prodigal son story. Now that story's got basically three meanings to it, but the purpose for giving it's given at the end. You say, can sinners repent? The answer is absolutely. The prodigal son comes back to the father. Is the father waiting for him? Yes. He's excited. He throws a big banquet for him. But how does the last one of those parables end? pouty brother outside going, I can't believe you're throwing a party for my brother. He's been horrible and wretched and wicked, and I'm such a fantastic person. 
And the father's going, listen, you ought to rejoice that your brother has returned. So you go, what's the context? Jesus is teaching these individuals that God rejoices at the return of sinners. Why can't they? There's something wrong with them if they can't do this. So that's what the, you go, okay, well, that's what he's doing. He's, he's talking to not the sinners, though the prodigal son would give them hope that, okay, you know, we can return. But the, the whole purpose of those is finally to get to the end and go, God rejoices at returning sinners. Delights in it. But yet you have a group of people, arms folded, that. So sometimes the context will give you why the parable is there and it's answering the situation around it. And so if you know that, then you can uh, understand a parable. Then number three. Okay, we'll move along quicker here uh, from here on out. Look for the, and this is a blank, the main truth or truths. Okay, look for the main truth or truths. Um, As you have uh, in the parable, usually one truth is what you're looking for. Though if you study some of the parables, they've got two or three characters in them. I will say oftentimes what those two or three characters will do is give you two or three truths that the Lord's trying to get across. So if you have characters in a parable, that's probably indicating, okay, there's more than just one truth that he's trying to get across. He's trying to get across one, two, or three uh, thing. So I, I'm just telling you that, but you're looking for the one main truth, not all these little bitty details, you know, is this, you know, what is this? No, it's, it's one truth the Lord's trying to get across, unless you have multiple characters. Um, and so this is what you have in that blank underneath there. Characters in the parable often illustrate truths. For example, the prodigal son, you've got three truths that are, are very clear in that. The prodigal can return. The Father loves repentant sinners. And those of you that are mad that people can get saved, there's something wrong with you because you're not in line with what God's like. There's your three truths. Okay, So, um, so you have that. So uh, look for the main truth or truce. And when we say truce, if you've got two or three characters in the parable, then it's probably that the Lord is, is hitting several different things uh, in the story. <clears throat> Number four, I'm going to say this. Spoken words by characters often point to the truth. Okay? In the story, if you have the characters talking, saying stuff, okay, you'll find that in the parables that it is like, you know, you know if you, you wonder what this is about, this, this character said this, and this character says this, okay, it's something about this. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it's, it's, I believe, in uh, Matthew 24, 25, but I can't remember. Uh, it's the parable where um, the king invites everyone to come to this party for a wedding banquet for his son, and uh, there's been messages sent out, and then he sends out his servants to go, okay, hey, it's time to come to this wedding feast and be a part of this, and everyone's just like, nah, don't want to come. No, we don't care if you're the king. We don't really want to come. We've got other things to do. Uh, and in fact, some cases, they, they kill the messengers. You know, not very smart. But then at the end of this, the, the king says this. says, go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. What you have is this, is that 
he is telling this parable because you've got the nation of Israel who should have been prepared and had been prepared and now the messenger had come and said, hey, he's here, the king's here, you know, the festival's ready to begin and they don't. And so what the, the story is saying is this, is that the Lord says, okay, I'm going to go out into the highways and byways out there, way outside of where you're at and compel people to come and be a part of this. He's telling people, I'm, I'm not limiting my my sphere of influence just to you Jewish people who are going to reject me. I'm going to go out and compel people to come in from the whole world. But this is the king saying this at the end. So spoken words will help you sometimes understand what the point of the, uh, the point to the truth uh, or point to the truth. Five, the, end, the emphasis at the end of the parable can shed light on the truth. Okay, so at the end of the parable, sometimes there's this emphasis where the last phrase is this, you know, he that hath ears, let him hear. Okay, pay attention. Uh, some of you aren't. Uh, so that, that's the last statement of one of the parables, and you're kind of going, okay. He's basically saying you're not, you're not listening. You need to start listening. Uh, so last stress is a, a, an important thing here. Um, <clears throat> Number six, I'm just going to put this out here. This is not a really deep point, but it's just this. Remember that parables illustrate truth, not declare it. Okay? You're not going to get everything answered that you want answered. It's just, it's, it's illustrating things and you're going, well, that's kind of a partial truth. I, I, I will, uh, I'll use this as an example. Um, it's the story of the widow who comes to the unjust judge and continuously begs the, this unjust judge to take care in her matter. And, uh, and you go, okay, uh, so this is pointing to the fact that we're supposed to pray continuously and keep praying over and over again. But wait a second. The unjust judge is just a, you know, he's not a nice guy. And he finally goes, fine, I'll deal with it to get you off my back. And you're going, is God like that? You're going, No. Okay, this is an illustration. It's not completely declaring truth. You're not going to get all the details matching in some of these stories that you're thinking, okay, so you just kind of go, okay, but the truth is this. Oh, okay, it's illustrating the fact that I keep coming again and again, just like this widow did to this nasty judge, uh, this type of thing. So understand that sometimes you, you kind of go, well, you know, it's not exact, you know, you're kind of going, okay, it's an illustration. So just remember that. But then number seven, okay, this one is one that we should do all the time, but to ask for wisdom and understanding a parable. James chapter one, verse five, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men, women, liberally. You say, what does that mean? Freely. And he abradeth not. That doesn't mean that he comes and goes, you know, when we come to him and go, I don't understand this again. You know, I'm not sure what this parable is. I'm not sure what this parable is. I'm not sure what this parable means. And the Lord finally goes, ah, come on. You know, you never did that with your kids. Why? Because. Why? Because. Why? Because. Okay, stop asking. Okay, that's enough. You know, God never does that to us. Um, our grand one in our household was because God made it that way. You know, that was kind of our, you know, why? Well, okay, you know, don't question God. Uh, you know, um, <clears throat> but God doesn't upbraid us for coming and asking again and again to go, you know, I don't quite understand what this is. Help me show me, help me out. And uh, so I will say that good study Bibles help with this sometimes. You know, as I read through, sometimes I'll look down and go, 
the notes aren't inspired, but they can go, oh yeah, I had forgotten about this. So uh, good commentaries. But uh, sometimes you're just looking at it and going, what does this mean? Lord will bring things to your remembrance uh, if you ask him. So some helps with that. So next week we will, we will start going through some of these parables and uh, mine some of the, the richness of these things and uh, get to know the Lord better and what his plans were uh, through some of these stories that he told. Lord, we thank you for your son who makes uh, truths and realities uh, so clear to us uh, that are looking for answers and looking for uh, your direction, that these stories, the parables are a help to us. And so we're thankful for them. Uh, may we understand them better and be able to, as we read through it, be refreshed and encouraged time and time again uh, in seeing these truths. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.